So, um, as most of you know, we've, we've been in this sermon series, I Am Jesus. Uh, it's a 14-week um, sermon series, and we've got about three more to go in that series, but we're going to be taking a break for this Sunday and next as we, as we head into the, um, the Holy Week season, um, which begins today with Palm Sunday. So for this week and next week, we'll be pausing that series because I want us to focus in on uh, just the importance of what Jesus has done for us, the, the crucifixion, the resurrection. Um, that, that's the, the cornerstone of our faith, right? The risen Lord. So um, that's where we'll be for the next couple of weeks, and then we'll pick up the sermon series again after uh, Easter. So... <clears throat> What we have here, Jesus begins by sending two of his disciples to a village to get a cult. And what this is doing is this is starting the clock down to Jesus' death. Okay, this begins. Jesus knows by doing this, okay, the time is here. The hour has come. Often Jesus talks about it is not yet my time. The hour has not yet come. The hour is now rapidly approaching and Jesus knows that he is in the last week of his earthly life and so he sends the two disciples to go ahead and they get the cult and he even tells them what to say Jesus already knows how the scenario is going to play out they're going to get there they're going to untie the cult and then the owners are going to be what are you doing with the cult I suppose any of us could probably have figured that out but Jesus tells them what to say he tells them the Lord needs this And so what this shows is, is that Jesus was entirely in control of the events surrounding his death. This didn't take Jesus by surprise. This wasn't a case of something Jesus didn't want to do. He was entirely in control and he knew what must take place and how it would take place. And so the the disciples, they retrieve the cult and they bring it back to Jesus. And then we're told that people spread out their coats And actually, in in Matthew's um, uh, narrative, we read from Luke this morning, but in Matthew, he also mentions that they they spread out palm branches. And that's, of course, why we call today, this Sunday, Palm Sunday. But what they were doing here, this was a sign of, of paying homage to the one who was worthy of praise and worship, the one that we sang about and sang to just moments ago. Verse 37, it tells us, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. You know, right there, that is a prescription for how we can worship, how we can worship in church, how we can worship together, joyfully to praise God in loud voices. Do you know it's okay to be loud when you worship, right? We can be loud at sports games, right? but joyful, full of praise. And, you know, we have to remember something, and I've sort of been pointing this out in um, our our, our, I Am Jesus sermon series, that Jesus would have been well-known. He'd have been semi-famous in the area. Why? Because of all the miracles that he had been doing. Word would get out. Imagine if there was somebody around today who was healing the sick, and the lame, and the, the deaf, and, and the mute, right? Word would get out, wouldn't it? I mean, they'd be an internet sensation, right, if they were around today. But even in Jesus' time, word spread rapidly. Think about last week, the feeding of the 5,000, which was more like ten or 20,000, really. Okay, 
That's a lot of people for any day and age. That's a lot of people for Jesus' day. So he would have been semi-famous. He would have had a substantial following, people following Jesus, not just the 12, but, but other people calling themselves his followers. And I'm sure there was a bunch of mixed motives to why people were following Jesus. Some were the real deal, and I'm sure many were like looking for a miracle, looking for what they could get out of Jesus. So they're praising him, and they're seeing him as the expected Messiah that the Jewish people have been waiting for. Verse 38, they say, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. So they're looking at Jesus and they're thinking, could, could this be? Could this be the long-awaited Messiah that we've all been waiting for? And actually what Jesus is doing by riding in on this donkey is he's, he's fulfilling an Old Testament prophecy from the book of Zechariah, chapter 9, verse 9. And it says the following, Rejoice greatly, Daughter Zion, shout, daughter Jerusalem, see, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So Jesus here, he's fulfilling a prophecy that's hundreds and hundreds of years old. And right here, Jesus is is fulfilling that. But not only is Jesus fulfilling an ancient prophecy, he's also making a statement of humility. It's a statement of humility because he doesn't come blazing in on a stallion, sword drawn, in royal robes, hair blowing in the wind. No, he comes on a donkey. I used to go on those rides when I was a kid. He comes in on a donkey. And it's here that we get a hint that Jesus is not the kind of king the people are expecting. He's not the kind of Messiah that they have in mind. What the people did not realize is that he would not be the Messiah they thought he would be. He wouldn't be the one who would come to free them from the Roman occupation. That's what they wanted. That's at least what they thought they wanted. But actually Jesus had come to bring something far, far more important, something far, far more powerful. Jesus had not come to free them from the Romans, but to free them and all of us from the curse of death and sin. That's what Jesus had come for. That was his purpose. That's why he was going down this road that would lead to the cross. Because he had come to bring freedom from the curse of death and sin. Jesus' purpose was far greater than any worldly idea we might have. And while all this celebration is going on, there's one group that's not happy. It's always one group, isn't there? There's always that one person. And everything's going great, and there's somebody who's always not happy. Well, yeah, you've guessed it. It's, it's the good old Pharisees. You always rely on the Pharisees. But they're not happy. They're not happy at this situation. They're not happy at this scene. Jesus on the donkey, people adoring, shouting out praises, singing Hosanna. No, they say to Je- they tell Jesus, teacher, rebuke your disciples. Rebuke your disciples. Tell them to zip it. And isn't it ironic that here were Israel's greatest teachers, 
the greatest teachers Israel had, the, uh, the greatest students of the scriptures. They knew these inside out. They had to have the Torah memorized. And yet they didn't recognize the one who'd inspired those scriptures. They didn't recognize the one who's before them, the one who those scriptures are all about. They were blind to the reality of who Jesus was. And you know, is anything different today? Both in the church and outside of the church. There are people who know scripture inside out, people who are very gifted People who've been Christians for years, faithful, and yet they don't really know Jesus. Haven't really spent much time with him. They haven't grown close to him. And then, of course, outside of the church, in the the secular world, there are many brilliant people, people in high places of authority and influence who, who don't recognize Jesus. In fact, often they can be opposed to who Jesus is. Often they are part of that crowd saying, rebuke your disciples. Often their reaction is just just like the Pharisees. Don't mention the name of Jesus. It's embarrassing. It's misguided. It's offensive. That offends me. The Pharisees are doing... When they say, Jesus, rebuke your disciples. You know what they're saying is they're essentially saying, stop allowing people to give Jesus praise and worship. And especially out in the open, out in the public. Don't let this happen. And you'd think 2,000 years later, maybe something would have changed, but it hasn't really, has it? Um, We have relative freedom still in this country. But there are many places around the world where people are persecuted, are killed for their public declaration of of who Jesus is. And you know, even, even in free democracies, such as our own, such as in my own home country of the UK, we do see more and more stories of people being, being silenced or shut down for sharing the, the gospel, for sharing their faith with others. Don't mention Jesus at work, right? I mean, how many of us feel intimidated to either mention Jesus, to talk about Jesus, or even to let people know at your workplace that you're a a Christian? I'm lucky because my work's all about Jesus. So I can talk about Jesus all I want, and hopefully, no, I won't get fired. (laughs) Unless I talk about Jesus in the wrong way, then... But better not pray in public, right? At a public event. And if you do, don't mention the name of Jesus. Rebuke those people. Don't mention Jesus at school. Unless it's in a comparative religion class, then it's okay. You know, even through this pandemic... We've seen ways that have been unjustly used to 
restricts and limit how we worship, right? I understand that we, we have to take precautions. We have to do our part. We have to try and be safe and help others be safe. But there have been places where there's been an abuse of this power. You know, during the lockdowns that have occurred in the UK, <clears throat> which actually have been far more stringent than here, actually. They've had some really tough lockdowns. I'm talking to my, my brother and my sister and my dad, and they're still in, like, full-on lockdown right now. They're, they're just waiting for April to open up. And... But in the UK, the, the Scottish government made it a criminal offence to hold in-person worship services. A criminal offence. To come together and to worship corporately. You could end up going to jail or being fined. In Scotland. The land of Braveheart and Haggis where the men wear skirts proudly. But they made it a criminal offence. Right now, we, we could get put in prison for this in Scotland. Actually, not right now, because I'm going to tell the rest of the story. But rebuke those disciples, right? Rebuke, rebuke those people who are worshipping Jesus. Well, a coalition of 27 Scottish pastors... They challenged the ruling. And praise God, just last week, a, a judge by the name of Lord Braid, Lord Braid, he ruled the law unconstitutional. So you can no longer be imprisoned or fined for gathering together to worship in Scotland, just in time for Easter, praise God. But you know what, if those pastors, if they'd not courageously made a stand, you would still be able to be fined or imprisoned for gathering in a house of worship in a free democracy. The Reverend William Phillip, who's a senior pastor of a church in Glasgow, and he was part of one of the, uh, the 27 pastors who, who brought this case, he said the following quote, From the outset, we have recognised the serious decisions of the Scottish ministers had to take in response to the pandemic. However... Its approach to banning and criminalizing gathered church worship was clearly an overreach and disproportionate. And if this had gone unchallenged, it would have set a very dangerous precedent. However well-intentioned, criminalizing corporate worship has been both damaging and dangerous for Scotland and must never happen again. He goes on. And this part of the message I really want you to hear because I think this is so crucial for us to hear in the times that we're living in. He says this, he goes on, he says, there is an urgent need for a message beyond that of just health and safety. A message of hope and salvation. And Jesus Christ is the only hope that dispels all fear, death included. End quote. Do you hear what he's saying there? Okay, we, we've got to take our hope from something different to the rest of the world. Because we're not supposed to be like the rest of the world. We're supposed to be different. We're supposed to be followers of Jesus. And so what that means is that our hope is found in something far bigger, something eternal. 
that dispels all fear, even death. As followers of Jesus, as time progresses, it's probably going to get a little bit more uncomfortable for us to be true followers of Jesus. There's going to be more situations like this. We're going to read more things about this. There's going to be more instances of being rebuked and rejected for being followers of Jesus. But you know, it's okay. Because look at Jesus' response to the Pharisees when they say, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Jesus says in verse 40, I tell you, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. The stones will cry out. So, so nothing, nothing can ultimately prevent Jesus Christ from being glorified. Nothing. Not a pandemic, not a government law, not a prison sentence, not even death itself can prevent Jesus from being glorified. In fact, ironically, death ends up glorifying Jesus because he conquers it. And on top of that, if we don't, the stones will. Again, isn't that ironic that the stones, inanimate objects, metaphorically speaking, had a better understanding of who Jesus was and is than the so-called experts? Now the scene changes, and as Jesus begins to approach Jerusalem, and he, he sees the city, he's, he's looking out over Jerusalem, his beloved city of Jerusalem, and we're told in verse 41 that he wept over it. He wept over it. And you know, and it's easy to gloss over that if you just read that. Oh, you know, shed a couple of tears, you know, got, got a little teary-eyed looking at the city. No, that, that word, wept, in the Greek, it doesn't mean just shedding a little tear. It means to burst into tears, to sob, to wail. Can you imagine Jesus doing that? He's overlooking Jerusalem and he just breaks down. He starts sobbing, weeping. It's one of only two times that we read of Jesus weeping in Scripture. The other was the death of Lazarus. But Jesus, he's distraught because he knows and has foreseen the future of Jerusalem and how it's going to be destroyed. He's looking at this city and he knows what's coming. He knows what's coming. Verse 43, he prophesies, he says, The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. They didn't realize God among them. And what Jesus is, is describing here is what would happen in Jerusalem in 70 AD. Where the city and its inhabitants were Completely, well, not completely, but they were destroyed. The city was, and most of the people, along with the Jewish temple that was sacred to the Jews. And the language that Jesus is using here, if you notice, he's, Jesus is describing a siege. And that's what the Romans did. They surrounded the city, cut off all the supplies, and people starved to death. There's gruesome stories of cannibalism going on. Is documented in Josephus' histories. People got that desperate. It's horrific. It was awful. 
But that's what happened under the Romans, under the Emperor Titus. Completely destroyed Jerusalem to make an example of them. But you know, it's a reminder for us too that like Jerusalem, rejecting Jesus, it doesn't lead to good things. It leads to death. And even in this life right now, without, without Jesus, you won't find true or lasting peace. It cannot be found without him. What did we just sing this morning? Jehovah Shalom. God is our peace. Listen to what verse 42 says. It says, Jesus says, even you, even you, if you had known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. Of course, he's saying this over Jerusalem. The word means city of peace. Jesus is saying, if you just don't, I'm right here. I'm the source of peace, the source of life. Jerusalem, you could have had it all. But you don't see who I am right in your midst. God among you. And that peace that comes from God. My question for, for all of us this morning, in the midst of this pandemic, who'd have thought it would have gone on this long? That we would be into our second Holy Week season and, and still wearing masks, still separated from loved ones. It's been a tough, tough year. But my question is, in the midst of all this that we've all had to deal with, and with all the fear and anxiety that that has brought do we truly know what brings us peace do we truly know that as followers of Christ do we truly know what really brings us peace because if we do we'll realize it's not found in what this world can offer us it's not going to be found in news updates and Latest guidelines from the CDC or, or things like that. It's, you know, those, of course, are helpful and uh, we need those. But that's not where our true source of peace lies. You're not even going to find it in what I tell you. I know that's hard to believe, but <laughs> now we find it in Jesus. He is our peace. He is the source of life. And in him, we can have rest. And, you know, that word peace that Jesus uses it has a deeper meaning because it's also talking about peace with God a repairing and a restoration of our relationship with God which has been broken because of sin that is where the true peace lies when our relationship with God is restored and Jesus is the one who restores it and gives us that peace but you know, when you have that peace, right, and it's a peace that transcends all understanding, yeah? It's a peace that you shouldn't have in crazy circumstances, and yet we can have that. We're told we can have that. A peace that transcends all understanding. That can help rule out the fear in your life. You see, because you can't, we can't, especially as believers, we can't operate both in fear and faith at the same time. One will override or overrule the other. So if you're walking in fear, 
That's going to override your faith. And if you're walking in faith, that will override the fear that you are experiencing. And that's when you get the peace that Jesus is talking about here. So much of our restlessness and and lack of satisfaction in life, our deep anxiety and our unhappiness and feelings of emptiness, they come from the fact that we're not in right relationship with God. When we get in right relationship with God, that all, it all shifts. When we bring Jesus into our lives. And so as we, we enter Holy Week, we're about to embark on a journey to the cross and to the resurrection. We have to go through the cross to get to the resurrection. That uncomfortable part of our faith, that uncomfortable reality about God's justice. We come to the resurrection next week and it's because of those historic and those seismic events that we can now truly have peace even in the midst of everything that's going on. We can have that peace and that should give us all a lot of hope and a lot to be thankful for. Let's pray.